Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Internet Film Wrap Special, and it's John Gibbons hosting. And we're delighted to be joined by Damien Hughes, who's an old friend now, I'd like to say. So welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me, John. And looking forward to it. Yeah, we're here to talk about uh, your latest book, which is The Barcelona Way. Um, People who, who who don't know Damien, who may be newer listeners, uh, do do try and listen to the the podcast that we've done with him already. Maybe go back and do do those first because they are, you know, timeless. Really, we've done stuff, some, a lot of stuff about leadership, and that's that's where your expertise is, isn't it, Damien? You're 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 a professor, you're a motivational speaker, and and kind of what you've done throughout your career, if you like, is speaking to leaders about creating winning cultures, and and that might be in sport or it might be in business, yeah. but but anywhere that kind of wants to succeed. Yeah, so that's my background. Um, my background is I'm a professor of organisational psychology and change, so it's very much around how do you create high-performing cultures and then how do you make them robust enough to cope with sort of change that whatever industry it is demands. Yeah, and so th- this book itself is, is is kind of subtitled Unlocking the DNA of a Winning Culture, and it's focused on Barcelona. And I think it's interesting that, that, that you sort of pick Barcelona as a case study, if you like, because... What the book kind of reinforces, but a lot of us forget, is this Barcelona that we have now that we that we associate um, hasn't it hasn't always been the case, has it? It hasn't always been the case. I mean, obviously they've been a successful yeah. football club, but they haven't been the the all conquering kind of football club that we we kind of know and associate with now. And actually, when you start this book, they're in a bit of a funny situation, which which kind of could have gone either way for them, really. Yeah, very much. So the idea behind it was that my publisher um, asked me if I'd be interested in writing a book on organisational culture. Now, the reality is that's quite a dry topic on its own. So they said, would you be interested in doing it for your sports team? So we narrowed it down to three teams. One was uh, the new uh, the New Zealand Rugby Union uh, team. One was the New England Patriots in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And then the third one was Barcelona. And the reason we narrowed it down to those three is a lot of teams talk about culture. A lot of sports teams will say, oh, yeah, we have a good culture here. But the reality is very few of them take it really seriously. And those three did. So the reason, so we ruled out almost by omission, uh, New Zealand had been done quite a lot. New, uh, the New England Patriots, I don't know enough about it, so I felt that I'd, there'd be a little bit of fraudulence about trying to take yeah. an interest in something I don't understand. But Barcelona was the third one. So where the book starts is, back in 2006, they'd won the Champions League for the second time in their history, so they beat Arsenal in Paris. And the club sat back almost and... By their own admission, there was a little bit of complacency. They just thought success was now going to continue rolling along. And the next two years, in the words of one of the board members that I interviewed, said it was like a slow-motion car crash taking place. So the year after they finished 18 points behind Real Madrid, the year after that, it got even worse. 
but it was by the March of the second season when this was going wrong, they decided that they needed to do something very different. So they decided to replace Rijkaard, who was the coach at the time. But rather than panic, they let him go to the end of the season and use that period to properly investigate what culture could be and how it could be a competitive advantage. Because like a lot of clubs, like Liverpool, like um, Manchester United, like um, Chelsea or any other clubs in the Premier League, the reality is you get to a level where talent evens itself out, where um, the payroll um, is pretty much equal. Uh, and so you start looking at, well, what other competitive advantages can you have? And culture is one of these areas that is not that well understood and therefore offers you some brilliant opportunities. So Barcelona looked at, well, what, what could culture do for us? And what they found was that, first of all, there's five different types of culture. So that's interesting in its own right, because when you look at it, you see that so many clubs will almost organically or by accident allow these five cultures to, uh, to be created. Yeah. But what we know is there's one particular type of culture that is your equivalent of winning the lottery. And that was the one that is the more difficult one to pursue, but that was the one they went after. And the success over the last 11 years is unprecedented, not only in their history, but also in Spanish football history. So they've won nine out of the last 11 domestic league titles that have been available to them. They've won the Champions League three times, having only ever won it twice before in their 100-year history before this. They've been World Club champions three times, having never won that at all. So you start to get an idea that culture, if you marry it up with talent, can actually be a huge advantage. And that's not just the case for football, it's the case for business or or anyone running their own social team or in any context you like, uh, if you understand it, it can be uh, dynamite for you. I just want to run those through those five different yeah. types of cultures, if that's okay, Damien, because I think people will find it interesting to kind of, because because when you talk about them, you talk about them in business, but also identify a football team that yeah. it's most like. And I think that the, the, the top one, the first one is the star model. This is kind of the what you described as the Real Madrid kind of Galatico's yeah. idea, which is go out and buy the best players you possibly can and hope they gel. Yeah, and that's it. So it, so the star model um, is almost where you, you, so you go out your way to recruit the best talent, pay them the highest money, give them the best facilities. Then you almost sit back and just expect that all that talent will come together and be better and be greater than uh, than its parts. So Real Madrid offers you the best example of it. Since uh, Perez came in in 2003 with his, this Galactico policy, he's put it into place uh, where you aim to recruit the world's best player year after year after year. Now, what the danger is for this is that we get blinded by the occasional success. So people can point that they've won the last three consecutive Champions Leagues, which has never been done in the modern era, and they go, well, it must work. But what you neglect to observe in that same period is they've only won two out of the last 15 domestic league titles available to them in that period as well. So it shows you how it's almost erratic. The best way to think about it is it's erratic, that when it works, it's spectacular, but when it goes wrong, it's also spectacular. So one Real Madrid coach uh, described it as, he said, the problem with a culture like this is everyone wants to be the head waiter, but nobody wants to wash the dishes. So it's almost that idea that, yeah. um, that it, so the front of the house looks great, but it's the back of the house that will let you down over a sustained period. And the next one's autocracy, which is the idea of, of, of this one guy at the top. You mentioned Chelsea, Roman, Abramovich. There's also business examples. I think things like Apple, where you've got Steve Jobs, who's the kind of, who's the man really. Yeah, I think a more personal example since I wrote the book is uh, Ferguson at United. Yeah. So I think that's a great example of it, that 
Ferguson had been developing a very different type of culture at the club until 2005 when the Americans came in and bought them out. And when that leverage buyout happened, Ferguson became the most powerful figure at the club. So the Americans have admitted themselves, if Ferguson would have publicly opposed them, they'd have never got the funding to do it. Yeah. And I think you can tell that the autocracy model at United started to take hold from them because Ferguson's language makes some subtle uh, additions. So one of his big phrases he used to say is, there's nobody bigger than Manchester United. Post-2005, he starts to add the caveat, there's nobody bigger than the manager of Manchester United. So I think what we've seen in the last um, six years since he retired is that vacuum that was created by his retirement has led to dysfunction because you've got, like, you have the occasional star model where they go and recruit the likes of Pogba and Sanchez for yeah. ridiculous money. You've got a bureaucratic culture, which we'll come on and talk about in a minute, where it's about uh, rules and regulations. And then they've occasionally appointed an autocrat like Van Hal or Mourinho and what you've seen is those three cultures are almost fighting for supremacy and the results on the field get get uh, almost become secondary yeah. to whoever's the dominant force and uh, the next one you've just uh, quickly talked about there but uh, bureaucracy and it and it I think it's interesting in the book to use the example of kind of Liverpool under yeah. Brendan Rodgers because that was a time that looking back on just did seem very confused and I think that's something that can happen is if you've got all these voices that are in theory kind of equal then you end up kind of trying to please everyone and pleasing no one and we, I remember the situation with Liverpool where it was the idea of okay well if you sign one player then this other fella gets another and we end up so the so the the, the, the committee got uh, Firmino and then Brendan Rodgers got Christian Benteke then suddenly you've got to work out how they're going to play yeah, together yeah. yeah so it's almost like when decisions are made by committee there's the old saying that a camp Camel's a horse designed by a committee. So you're trying to appease everybody. And the reality is you appease nobody. And that was one of Rogers' big complaints when he left was yeah. that he said there's a confusion at the board level because you've got that transfer committee where you've got Mike Gordon heading it up. Mm. And a lot of the and the example I offer in the book is uh, the signing of Balotelli. So on on statistics alone, he looked like a no-brainer that you've got I think it was Rogers that said you've got a potentially a £70 million player that you've been offered for £15 million. So if you're just looking at it on stats, you go, well, why wouldn't we do it? But culturally, bringing in somebody like him that just didn't fit, that caused all kinds of trouble uh, in terms of his, um, you know, like the stories you hear about his, his discipline or his timekeeping and things like that, was almost anathema to any culture that wants to be successful. But it made sense on a spreadsheet uh, sat overseen by a committee. Yeah, okay. Um, the next one's engineering, which um, used the example of kind of Dortmund, really, yeah. which is about a kind of specialist in certain positions. Yeah, so you recruit people with a deep knowledge in a narrow domain. So again, like another topical example, is Dortmund are specialists in this, especially when Klopp was there. He was recruiting technically brilliant players and just adding them up. So, so he had this idea of his heavy metal football. I think a better example... If you look at it um, in the last decade, it's been Arsenal under Wenger. So anyone that under that has been watching them can see that they've got some technically amazing footballers, yeah. but they just don't seem to add up to be greater than the sum of its parts. So there's lots of technically exquisite players, but the cumulative effect of them in in relation to a team isn't quite there. So yeah, that's where. And what you find in engineering courses, people make excuses for talent. 
oh, he's a talented lad, but you yeah. should see what he can do in training. And they make lots of excuses for them because he's talented. Yeah. But the, the cohesion is often secondary in those cultures as well. Okay, and then the last one, and by far the most successful that, that, that you found, not just studying sports teams, but also yeah. kind of businesses. And I think the the, uh, the actual original study was done in Silicon Valley, wasn't it? That found That's that right. commitment culture was not the only one to succeed. And it's important we say that this isn't the, you know, that you will see successes in all those other cultures, but, yeah. but much more likely to concede if you can install a commitment culture, but it's also the most difficult. Yeah, commitment cultures are almost your equivalent of winning the lottery. If you're prepared to pursue this, it's the most difficult one to get. But if you can do it, what the research from Silicon Valley said is, commitment cultures tend to be about 22% more successful than the other four types of cultures. And, and as you point out, John, that doesn't mean that they're not successful. And and like the Real Madrid example, they can burn really brightly. Mm. But the most sustained success is going to come from a commitment model. I mean, they find as well, there's another stat that says people stay loyal to commitment cultures even when they're offered pay rises of up to 36% to go somewhere else. So the best way to think about it is where doing good and being good somehow seem to overlap. And if you think about it, there's no coincidence that you go through, say, the last... 50 or 60 years of football history, you'll find that commitment cultures are the ones that seem to dominate uh, for periods. So you think of what Shankly set up uh, 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 when he came in from Huddersfield, this idea of that Liverpool were a representative of the city itself. You know, we had the, and mm. at the time we'd sort of like the links with the Merseybeat sound and the fact that his socialist principles, he spoke to the city. You look at what Ferguson did at United for that for that period where he came in and he had local lads playing and there was very much a sense of identity with Manchester as a city. And that's very much what Barcelona chose to do in, two, in 2008. This is the way that we're going to pursue it. Yeah, it's that idea of selling a vision. You talk about that in the book, don't you? That yeah. a key part of, of starting a commitment culture is, okay, well, what is the vision? How are you going to set it yourself? And then how are you going to sell it to all the people you need to follow? Yeah, so at Barcelona, I mean, they've got I mean, they've got their own interest in history. So they've got the geopolitical context that they want to represent the best of Catalonia, the region, to so both Spain and the wider world. And they see the football team as doing that. Now, the vision for them was laid down by Cruyff when he came in, in the initially in the 70s because he diagnosed that they suffered from Madriditis. So his point, I, and I really like this idea, he says you can't be successful if you view yourself as a victim. So if you see yourself as being subjugated by Franco's uh, Spanish regime, you can't be successful. We need to come out there and identify what we stand for. So another way that he did it was he said, and we do this through playing with style and panache and flair. So his point was that it's not just about winning trophies because he said, if you do that by playing boring defensive football and you don't win the league, well, you've lost on both counts. Yeah. Whereas, you, so it's not either or, it's both and. We can be successful and we can do it by playing this stylish, exciting football. So Barcelona said we want to do a commitment culture. As you say, they spent a bit of time towards the end of that season deciding what they wanted to do. 
and then they employ Pep Guardiola, which I think can seem a no-brainer now because we know what a good manager Pep Guardiola is. But at the time, he was he had one year at Barcelona, B wasn't it? He'd obviously been a great yeah. player, but I mean, Barcelona could have had the pick of any manager that he wants. And I assume if you'd done a poll of Barcelona fans at the time, Pep Guardiola would have been sort of quite low down the list. Yeah, so they had a five a five man shortlist, and Guardiola. If you looked at it, I mean, Mourinho was top of the list at the time because he was flying after his success at Chelsea mm-hmm. and and at Porto before that. Uh, Laurent Blanc was another one um, and there was a number of other names. Guardiola was a 37-year-old novice. He was a former player that had been at the B team for one year and he'd had a bit of success there. But on paper, you'd never consider him. But what they did was they wanted someone to head it up. So the Daily Telegraph described a great line. They said, the guy that was making the decision was this guy called Ferenc Soriano that's now at City. They said, so he's the guy that sources the venue. The second guy they had was a guy called Cheeky Bagheerestein that's now at City as well, the director of football. They said, he's the guy that sources all the ingredients. And then what they needed was a head chef, which was where they decided on Guardiola. Now, their criteria to recruit Guardiola is really interesting. So if you view him just through a technical lens, he doesn't get the job because he's got no experience for a job that size. But what they did was they used a a criteria that Warren Buffett, the American investor, um, advocates for any business or any organization, you should view your leader through three lenses. The first lens is, um, do they have the energy to see the task through? The second criteria is, are they smart enough? Do they have the intelligence to know what to do? Now, his point is, if they have energy and intelligence alone, don't touch them. Because his point is, they could be really smart and energetic, but toxic to your culture. The third criteria is the, is, 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 is the deal breaker. And that is, do they have the integrity? Do they role model what they're going to ask the rest of the organisation to do? And in Guardiola's case, because they'd seen what he'd done as a player, that he was, more, he was a more cerebral player, he made the best of his talents. But significantly, he role-modelled the behaviours they were asking the organisation to do. And he demonstrated that there was a track record of it. So what I mean by that is, we talk about, in organisations, to have a culture, a culture says, well, how, how am I expected to behave? And they had three behaviours that were really significant. Yeah. The first one was humility. So they said, don't come into this organisation showing off your wealth, your privilege, your success, or your social media following, because that would indicate that you lack humility. And if you lack humility, that's an indicator that you lack the ability to listen to anyone else. And if you can't listen, you can't learn. And if you can't learn, you can't help us improve and get better. So humility was the first one. The second one was hard work. They say, if you come in here, you don't just coast on your talent. This isn't the end of the journey. This is just the end of the beginning bit. So you continue to work hard. And then the third one is, you put the team above your own self-interest. So the point they make there is, if there's ever a clash between what's right for you and what's right for the team, choose the team option. Yeah. Now, they were the three behaviours that they defined their success on previously at Barcelona, and they felt that Guardiola embodied all three of those that they'd seen as a player and what he was like as a bloke as well. So, because this was one of the questions I asked, I interviewed uh, Bagheerestein, the guy I mentioned earlier, and one of the legitimate challenges to this is, yeah, but this is a club that's had Messi on its payroll. They've had Iniesta and Xavi and a whole heap of other super supreme players. Is that is that why they've been successful? Yeah. And that's a legitimate challenge. And that was a challenge I put to uh, Bagheerestein. And his point was, and it's a great quote on culture that sums up in any context. He says, he says, your talent will get you as far as the dressing room door. 
how you behave decides if you if will keep you in there. So his point was, yeah, we do have talented players, but so do Real Madrid, so do Atletico Madrid, so do all our other European rivals. Mm-hmm. It's behaviour that will determine whether that talent can stay in that dressing room and be a member of a cohesive unit. So Pep Guardiola turns up, he arrives. Uh, yeah. The first thing he does is say he's going to sell three of his best players and he hires a water polo coach. Yeah, I mean, yeah. These are quite sort yeah. of extreme things to do on your first day, really. But I want you to sort of tell everyone a little bit more about both of those decisions, really, and, and why he did them and, and how it helped kind of install this culture from day one. Yeah, so when he was offered the job, it, it was in the March time. So Cruyff uh, was significant in this because they'd asked Cruyff uh, whether he'd be interested in coming back almost like as a mentor to Guardiola because it was Cruyff who was championing him, saying, get this guy in, he'll be perfect for you, he's ready. And um, Cruyff refused, he said, no, no, just appoint him on his own merit, you don't need me here. Um, And Guardiola describes it as the mariposa effector, he talks about the butterfly effects of Cruyff, set this whole thing in motion. So when they offered it, Guardiola was really interesting, he said to to the board, he, he said, you wouldn't have the balls to appoint me. And they went, yes, we would. So he said, right, if you do then, I'm going to take over, but on three criteria. And the three criteria, uh, or the main criteria was, you get rid of Deco, Ronaldinho, and Samuel Leto. Because what had gone on in that two years previously was, those three guys had gone to war very publicly with each other. They'd never really got on, but they went to war. So they were doing sort of like briefings at press conferences where they were sniping at each other. Um, Ronaldinho, after the 2006 World Cup, one of his entourage described it in quite a funny way to me. He'd said he decided to retire from football. He just didn't tell anyone. So, <laughs> so he pursued, like, by any measure, a pretty hedonistic playboy lifestyle. So there were stories of him coming to training direct from a club. But there were stories of, because he was such an engaging character, the, the master had let him sleep on the bench while they gave him a rub down. And they would find lots of excuses for him. Yeah. Now, what they noticed was that when this was taking place, Ronaldinho is obviously charismatic, he's had super, like phenomenal success, he's well-loved by the rest of the dressing room. What they noticed was a subtle effect started to take hold in their culture, where in that same 18-month period that he was getting away with these kind of uh, unprofessional behaviours, 10 out of the 23 players in the first-team squad separated or divorced from their partners in the same period. Mm. Now, it's no coincidence a number of them had been caught in compromising situations while they were out partying with Ronaldinho. What put the tin out on it for them as a club, which was why they backed Guardiola on this, was that so Messi had come in the dressing room as a, as a 16, 17-year-old adolescent boy, and he's seeing this, and unfortunately for him, Ronaldinho had befriended him and recognised his talent and sort of tried to nurture him and develop him. But twice by his 18th birthday, Messi had been in trouble for got caught drink driving coming back from parties at Ronaldinho's house. On one occasion, he crashed his car and he was fortunate it was was a Barcelona fan that he'd had a collision with who the club managed to bury it. But it was the story is that it was Messi's dad had gone to the board and said, I'm not happy about the impact on the son that I've raised. And that was when they realised that if they didn't back Guardiola on this, not only would they compromise in the immediate Uh, success of the club but they were also mortgaging the future success of it as well so Guardiola come in and said if I'm going to make a fresh start based on these three behaviours of humility hard work and team first get rid of those three because they're my because they're the most 
influential characters within the dressing room and yet they don't seem to embody those behaviours. So they backed him with that and gave him permission. And he also did it quite publicly as well, I think, which is which is interesting in itself is that it wasn't sort of, you know, it was his first press conference, wasn't it? I've got a sort of quote here from it, which says, individually, they are worth much less than when they invoke team values. And I think that's yeah. him. So he's setting out the kind of the division, if you like, isn't he? And he's showing authentic leadership, which is all things you talk about in there, which he's not just saying, I'm going to sell these free lads. He's saying, I'm going to come out and say why I'm doing it. Yeah. I reinforce what I expect from everyone who's going to play for Barcelona in the future. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is he changed his mind on Eto for a year. So although he came out and said these three have got no part to play in it, he changed his mind. And what was interesting was that it was the it was some of the other players in the dressing room said Eto had, Eto had come back after that summer break and he was blitzing everyone in terms of his fitness and his statistics and his work ethic. So it was Puyol and Xavi and Iniesta that came back to Guardiola and went, you know those behaviours that you're holding us to account for? He is actually working harder than anyone else. He's keeping his head down and he's putting the team first, which was why he gave him a stay of execution and changed his mind on him. Now, he... he Eto reverted to type later on in that season, which was why he didn't make he, he didn't change his mind again and got rid of him at the end of that first year. But he was really clear about these are the rules of the game that we uh, that that we're playing by these days. So everybody knew what it was that he was holding them to account for. There was no uh, conversations about oh it's a personality clash or it doesn't fit. He was really clear about these guys just don't evoke what I'm asking everybody else to do. And I think there's something quite powerful about doing that because that way there's a transparency. We all know what we stand for here. We all know what you're going to judge us by. Yeah, and it shows as well the kind of, I mean, you talk a lot in the in the in the book about arc of change, which is the the period between deciding you're going to you know install a culture and, and kind of seeing it through to success, yeah. really. And, and you say something in the book which which I found sort of very pertinent, which is. We all kind of, you know, if you tell the story of the Shankly area at all, well, Shankly came in, he set the vision out and then he won lots of things. And, and what you kind of forget or what isn't told is the the bumps along the way, the problems yeah. and, and the times where you have to kind of stay firm. And, and I think that's what, what Barcelona managed to do so well is that in, in football generally, you know, fans, we just panic, don't we? And, and there's, you, you mentioned before about, you know, we make excuses for talent and we say just just you know just get him on the on the pitch yeah. type thing and and Barcelona had some tough decisions to make not just with those players but when they signed Latimerovic and it was well how important is is our culture to us and you know how how far are we prepared to go to reinforce it yeah so it's an important point that so if you look at the word commitment culture so if you look at the word commitment as we talk about in relation to culture commitment implies a choice or a decision on your part so you don't sleepwalk into a commitment course. You don't find yourself there by accident. When somebody's saying to you, this is the way that we're going to judge you on, these are the behaviours that you expected, you have to make a really clear choice to either... And Barcelona talk about the FIFO effect. They say, fit in or fuck off. But don't pick and choose the bits you like. Don't say, I'll do that and not that bit, or I'll take that bit seriously, or on some days I'll, I'll sign up to it. Their point is, sign up to all of it or none of it. And once they'd set sail with this particular path you're right that like the Ibrahimovic signing and and I decided to dedicate quite a significant chunk to that because because of its significance culturally so he was their record signing they brought him in for 70 million euros which was a, a record for them at the time and then got rid of him for 45 million euros 10 months later now 
on the surface, you go, oh, it must have been a personality clash. It must have been a conflict. But the reality was, Guard, um, Ibrahimovic came in and for his first three months was was phenomenal. And then as soon as difficulties started to occur for him, he reverted to type. So they told him about, these are the three behaviours, he'd agreed to it. So when he first signed from Inter Milan, he said to me, you send in a private jet to collect me. And he went, no, we don't do that. Humility is key here. We've got your seat on a plane, a commercial airline, get on that. When he turned up for training, they gave him the keys to his club Audi. He said, no, I don't need a car. He said, yeah, we know you've got fleet of fancy sports cars. Don't drive them into training. And he agreed to all of this. And his first three months when he was complying with it, he was phenomenal. Soon as he gets dropped for the first time, he turns up in a yellow Lamborghini. When he goes off on his Christmas break, he ends up doing what um, driving his snowmobile around in the mountains and on Sweden. He knows he's not allowed to do it for insurance purposes. He gets himself injured. When they play into Milan in the uh, European Cup, Ian, they ask him to help the team by playing in a different position and he refuses to do so. So he he transgresses the behaviours over that over his time there. And that was where the board themselves went, this is a really key moment for us as an organisation because if we turn a blind eye to this or we, or we decide that we start making excuses, but he's a talented lad that we're paying a lot of money for him. We basically throw away everything that we've done in building this commitment culture. He's demonstrated he doesn't want to fit in. Yeah. So they made the decision to fuck him off mm. because you can't afford to compromise when it comes to this if you're serious about the message you send to the rest of the organisation. I want to talk a little bit about cultural yeah. architects as well because I think that's a really interesting element of the book in that... You know, the Pep Guardiola is obviously the main guy who's setting yeah. out the vision, and he's the guy who's saying this is this is the expectations. I, you know, this is what I expect from all of you. But Pep can't be there all the time. Pep can't do it all on his own, and it, and and changing any culture or reinforcing any culture yeah. relies on what you talk, what you describe as cultural architects, which is people basically in the dressing room who not just embody those values, but will also pull up others when they're not displayed. Hundred percent. So, I, 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 like, we live in a weird world where we get caught up in this cult of leadership. So we assume that it's about Klopp, it's about Mourinho, it's about Guardiola, and we get. So they end up almost dominating the narrative. But there was a brilliant study done by um, Simon Cooper covers it in his book Soconomics. But um, it was by a Dutch economist called Baz van der Veel that looked at how much impact does a, does a coach have on the ultimate performance of a team. And what he advocates is they drive about 10% of the performance. And some of that is about this idea of setting the vision and behaving with authenticity. But the real power within a dressing room takes place from your peer group, the cultural architects. These are the leaders without title, the guys that run the dressing room that are there when nobody else is, that see what you're doing. Mm. Now, Guardiola was interesting because some of his first signings that he brought into the club was he promoted Pedro and Busquets from the, from the B team where he'd been coaching the year before. And then some of his other signings were Mascarano that he signed from, from you guys. Yeah. And um, he brought PK in from, uh, from Manchester. And one of the quotes that he gave to the Catalan press at the time was, those four guys had been recruited because they didn't have silly haircuts, sleeve tattoos or wear earrings. Now, you go, well, how's that in any way significant? So I was fortunate enough, I, 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 I got to ask the question of Guardiola through his brother, who's his agent, who'd been involved in some of those deals. And his point was, he said, he's got no problem against any of those things. It's not a style issue, he said. But his point was, he was looking for something around the character of those guys. And what 
if, and what he wanted was people that weren't looking to stand out. They were looking to fit in. They were looking to assimilate into a group. They weren't looking to come in and shape it. So what he wanted was leaders in that dressing room, about four or five of people that really identified with those behaviours. Now, an easy way to do it is just get people to vote for it so the players recognise against this criteria who stands out. So he ended up with five guys that really identified with this is the way we do things here. And then he gave them a really simple task. He said, catch people in. So when they're doing the behaviours, catch them in and recognise it. But when they're not, catch them out. And don't make a big fuss about it, but just gently guide them back in. So there's loads of examples of where, as a group, they started to demonstrate these behaviours. I mean, one of my favourite ones is um, they had a young lad called Thiago that ended up signed for Bayern Munich. Mm -hmm. And when he was 19, he made his debut for the club. He's come through La Masia, their academy. He scores his debut goal, and, and it's the fifth goal in a 7-0 victory against Real Numancia. So it's not the most significant goal ever, but for him, it's a, it's like the, sure, a crowning moment of a dream. And he runs across to the touchline and he starts doing this samba dance and Danny Alves, the fullback, joins in with him and the pair of them do it. And if you look at the footage, there's people like um, Pedro that laugh along with it, that they're all delighted for the kid. But it's only when PK turns up and he stops the dance, he gives them both a clip round the ear. And in the press conference afterwards, he comes out and issues a, a statement in the press conference. And he says, I just want to apologise to the Real Numancia players. And he said, not for beating you 7-0 we wanted to beat you by more if we could but I want to apologise for how we behaved after that fifth goal he said because we know you're honest professionals and we weren't looking to embarrass you or humiliate you because humility is a key characteristic that we stand for and he said so I'm sorry if it came across in, in, in an arrogant way I promise you it'll never happen again so Guardiola in the same press conference came out and said I agree with him because at that moment, you're looking at it going, wow, these guys, these guys really identify with this is what we stand for, this is the kind of characteristics we want. And they were prepared to deal with it themselves rather than wait for the boss to spot it and, and take action. And it's, it's interesting to kind of focusing on these kind of individuals and what makes a football club tick. And it makes you think about, you know, football clubs that have been successful and maybe players who, who haven't seen the most fashionable, who managers have kind of kept around. Yeah. And I'm sure that was the case under, under Ferguson. And, and, it, and it, you know, you saw, you see, thinking about it from a Liverpool point of view, someone like James Milner, who you think Jürgen Klopp will always find the space for. And if, if Liverpool fans, you ask them to pick, oh, what's Liverpool's best 11? They probably wouldn't put Milner in. They might put, you know, well, they might do, but they might pick more sort of fashionable players yeah, or, yeah. or more kind of flamboyant players. You know, you probably see, you see someone like Naby Keita pick more than you would James Milner by the supporters. But Jürgen Klopp always finds a way to get in there. And that kind of says something about how he sees him. Yeah, so, I mean, United are a really good example because watching it from a distance there... I, like you can see the cultural vandalism that's taken place since Ferguson went. So I remember when Van Hal came in and they were getting rid of the likes of Darren Fletcher or um, Johnny Evans yeah. and lads like that. Now they're not your best players in the world. They're never, but they understood something around the culture of that club and the fact that they were allowed to go. Say United where they got rid of Johnny Evans and they brought Marcus Rojo in from Argentina and you go, what does he understand about the culture of the club? Like he's not intending to stay in Manchester when he leaves. He's, yeah. he's like, this is a guy that is not a significant upgrade on him, but culturally is a downgrade on what you're doing. And you write about it in terms of when we've been on previously and we spoke about, um, is it Sacco? That, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the club had fired off yeah, yeah. quite quickly. And there was a lot of, well, what, like, why has he done it? But this is a guy 
that obviously betrayed some of the values that Klopp was looking to instill at the club. And I think it's interesting what, like, again, watching what he's done there because he's obviously won a few of his battles um, at the board level to be able to have the right to make decisions like that to get rid of him and been proven that he's putting the culture of the club above self-interest or above uh, just pandering to some of these stars. And, and and I think you're right. I think Milner's a really good example of it, of a hard-working, industrious, decent, humble bloke that obviously embodies the kind of culture that uh, that he wants. Van Dyke seems something similar yeah. uh, to that in terms of he's not... It, you know, it's not about him. He seems to evoke those same values. So I think Klopp's won the right to make some of these decisions now by the fact that he's 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 not only judging them on talent, but how they fit within the culture as well. I also had a bit of a think about Liverpool when you talk about the power of choice stuff. Yeah. And there was a, a thing with Phil Coutinho where he was sold in January and a lot of Liverpool fans were up in our arms about the timing of the sale um, and also the fact that we were selling a player on a long contract. And I think... What Jürgen was saying, well, if he wants to go, then if he doesn't want to be here, then he then he should go. And then look, Jürgen Klopp's not the first manager to have ever done that. You know, yeah. all the very successful managers who've who've had that kind of similar idea. But it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's again, it's it's putting culture above short term success. So obviously, Liverpool would have been better off that February if Phil Coutinho would have stayed. Yeah. But would they've been better off? A, a year down the line, if you'd have, if you'd have said you know you know you'd have sacrificed that that commitment culture and that also you know taken away that power of choice you know when you when you're trying to deal you know with yeah. players in the future. Well, you spoke about that idea, John, of the arc of change, where so all change follows a pattern, and and and, and we know this except for when we're doing it. So we know that there, there will always be a period in the me, uh, in the middle. It's often referred to as the messy middle, but the technical term is Cantor's law. Cancer's law is the bit when you're going through any change where it will look or feel like a failure in the middle. And what often happens is, and football clubs are a really good example, that's the period when we sack the manager. That's the period when we go, oh, get rid of the head guy. And you bring someone in to start the process again. They will meet the same challenges (laughs) if you've not addressed them. And the whole process just keeps going on. Whereas when you sort of back them to get through that period that's where you start to get the sustainable success at the other end. And I think you look at someone like Klopp, he's been pragmatic enough when he came in. He he was pragmatic enough to put short-term success in because he needs to get some credit in the bank. And then once he's achieved that, when he gets through that difficult period, the board are obviously now trusting him to go, this guy knows what he's doing. So even when we hit a difficult patch, we'll back him because we'll get through it. So if you don't win the league this year, you'll still be in contention next year. So it, 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 it'd be the sense that he's building for the long term, not just the short term success. And I always felt that that didn't ever look apparent under Rodgers. Yeah. It always looked like it was a bit of a fluke that year. There was lots of reasons when, you know, like the other... It was a big perfect rivals, storm type yeah, thing, yeah. Yeah, other rivals, had, had, they had new managers in and things like that. You weren't in the Champions League. Uh, Suarez was flying. Sturridge was... In form, so you had lots of things, but I wasn't convinced about the sustainability of it. What he's building at the moment looks something that will keep you in contention for the next four or five years. Yeah, and 
I guess the other thing that's nice to kind of bring it back to Liverpool is this idea of big picture. And I think that's something that we, we talk a lot at the Anfield Wrap about praising Liverpool, about saying, you know, it seems like much more of a one-club mentality at the moment. It seems like the messaging that they're putting out is right. Yeah. And we all, as supporters, feel much closer to the football club and much more part of it than maybe we did five, ten years ago when you just couldn't wait for something to criticise them yeah. for. And it does help that they're winning. And like Barcelona, it helps when, you, when, you, when, you, when you're winning. But also, it's kind of much more than that, isn't it? It's about having this you know identity of, of a football club that people can get behind and also clear messaging of what that is yeah so you look at lads like the fullback the Scottish lad Andy Robinson uh, yeah, yeah the, uh, that's come in for you and something like him is is again a bit emblematic of the likes of Milner as well you know like uh, he seems like a decent lad that appreciates the success he's had but he's not had it easy he's had to come up through the hard way so I was reading about Klopp over the Christmas holidays and something of his own story. Do you know mm. what I mean? He'd been a bit of a journeyman defender at Mainz and then he'd almost found himself in the job by accident. And again, Klopp is recruiting guys that seem to be in the similar mould to him that do value the power of team spirit to make up for your own maybe technical deficiencies. You know, and I saw the stuff where he was donating money to the homeless yeah, and, yeah. and uh, the food banks and things like that. You're right, I think there's something really powerful about Liverpool represent the city and there's something really quite uh, fiercely proud about the region of Liverpool, do you know what I mean? And I think these guys seem to be tapping into it, which, you're right, creates a huge amount of goodwill that you're prepared to forgive them the occasional lapses on the field because you know that essentially the decent lads doing the best that they can. Just a couple more before we finish. I realised we didn't we didn't do the, the uh, water polo story, and people might be going, "What was that about yeah, a yeah, water polo yeah, fella?" Yeah. So we better tell them. Yeah. So that's Menelas the art. So this is Guardiola's right hand man. Uh, he's a fascinating character. So he was regarded as the Maradona of water polo. So for years he dominated the sport, and in Europe it's a huge sport. So he was a superstar in his own right. And uh, Guardiola and him were mates from Guardiola's playing days. And they became particularly close when Guardiola went out to Brescia uh, to play for them. And then when he got caught up in the Nandrolone scandal, uh, this man LSDR was a proper friend to him at that time. So they'd always stayed close. And Guardiola's first appointment when he came in was to bring man LSDR in as his right-hand man. I mean, he still works for him now at City. And this guy is just his eyes and ears. So one of the things that he gave him was he said, I want you to just be clear about upholding these uh, these behaviours, the humility, hard work and team first. So there's lots of examples where he would just observe the players and then be feeding back to Guardiola. The famous story is where he used to sit on the substitutes bench and just watch who were the players that would be emotionally invested in the game and who were the ones that would sit chewing gum or chatting with each other. Um, what... SDR would look for that pattern over a significant period. And what he was looking for was, who are the ones that don't give a shit? Because they're not on the field. that They almost don't care what's going on. Because what they're, what that would indicate is they're not buying into the behaviour of putting the team first. They care when they're on yeah. the pitch. But if they're not, his point was, they're selfish. And you're getting evidence that you can present to the players to say, FIFO fit into this but start buying into it or you can find your way out and there was three names um, that were consistently transgressing this and those I mean you don't have to look too far but they were the ones that Guardiola just moved out within yeah. his first year these were guys and some of it was this man LSD art uh, just based on his observations what I, what I wanted to finish on was this idea of sort of learning from Barcelona but not 
making the, the mistake of copying them. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's something that comes out in the book as well. And I know you've, you've spoken about it before. And I think that's... Well, football clubs, first of all, can make the mistake of, of being too short-term and, and make the mistake of kind of doing all the things you said. Of just, oh, we'll just buy that player and yeah. it'll make everything all right rather than kind of investing in culture of success. But but also, I think a lot of us can make the mistake of, well, who's been successful and, and copy them? This was not the commitment culture necessarily, but the values and, and what they decided it was going to be impinged by was something specific that worked for Barcelona yeah. and, and another football club you know, need to kind of pick their own really rather than kind of copy that. We see that a lot, don't we? Yeah, so often. I mean, I find it really tiresome that, like, a lot of clubs do it as a gimmick. Yeah. Like, a lot of clubs might focus on this in pre-season when they've got no matches and they might dedicate a bit of time to it. And then the reality is when they get into it, they forget it. And then when they're in a moment of crisis, they bring it back up and talk about it again. So, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky enough, I work in a couple of teams where my job is to is to take this seriously and what's interesting is you see like other teams that we compete against that when things go wrong they immediately start talking about this topic but you go this isn't something you do every now and again this is something you have to take seriously and come up with your own version of it so I often encourage anyone that and anyone that might be listening who says well how do I come up with my version of it the way that I do it with teams that I work with is I, I use this philosophy called success leaves clues and I say, when you're good, why are you good? Because if you can't tell me why you're good, when you're shit, how do you know how to fix it? Yeah. So the idea is, start with looking at when you're successful, why are you successful? And get beyond attributing it just to, oh, we've got really good players, and say, no, no, what are the behaviours that are consistently present? So I'll give you an example. I, I, I work on the coaching staff at the moment with the Scotland Rugby Union yeah. guys. You've been there a while, haven't you? Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. So two years now. And we've done this with our own... Um, so we took 12 months and said, there are moments where, we're, where we are world-class, but equally there are moments where we fall short of that. So what we've done is, rather than worry about why we fall short, look at when we're world-class, what does that look like? And we've got three. So the three behaviours we have is we do everything with high energy, we're brave, and we stick together, we're a team. So when we're good, you can see the evidence of those behaviours. When we're poor, the evidence is by their absence, if that makes sense. So what we're trying to do is get more of the good behaviours present more frequently. So it's the same for anyone that would be interested if they were applying it to their team at work or their kids' football team or in any context. Just start with that question of why, when we're good, why are we good? And then... See how do we encourage more of those good behaviours and make them more frequent in our culture? I could talk to you for hours, Damien, <laughs> but I probably shouldn't take up any more of your time. But oh, the, loved it. Thanks for and the book's out now, it's available on all platforms and all that. You can get it in physical form and everything, and <laughs> yeah. any kind of digitally. And, and I'm sure there's an audio book too. Yeah, there? I did the audio books when they asked me. Uh, felt a bit like Andrew Sachs when he's Manuel in fault. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get my uh, trying to get my uh, accent around some of the uh, Spanish phrases, but uh, yeah, yeah, there's an audio book out as well that uh, might provide some amusement. About <laughs> <laughs> to say available. I've read it twice now because oh, I read it a few you. months ago, and then I had to sort of do a bit of a recap for this. But really enjoyed it, and also enjoyed your time again so much, David. No, no, well, thanks for having me on. I'm really grateful. Thanks. thanks. Cheers. Okay, thanks to David. Hope you've enjoyed that. Do let us know. And in the meantime, yeah, um, do buy the book and do enjoy it and have a look at your own cultures as well sports social podcast network